Babies reminded me of my mom, who died at 46 years old when I was 23. With her death, my world fell apart, and I reassembled it by running, which became a kind of legacy to her. Her death planted the idea of mortality in me, too. I expected to die at 46, just like she did. If that happened, and I had a baby, I reasoned, I'd be abandoning it as I'd been abandoned. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their memoir chapters or first-person essays about their true stories of personal daring, and then we talk about it. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. There's this thing I do sometimes when I can't make up my mind about something. A situation I find myself in frequently since I'm pretty good at thinking I'm gonna do something, pondering that choice for a moment, coming up with a few reasons why I might be better off not doing that thing, and then change my mind about it again a second and a half later. My poor husband, Phil, has to live with this sort of decision-making whiplash, and it usually pertains to something pretty mundane, like should we have salad with our chicken breast tonight or a potato? So, I'll flip a coin. Let the coin decide. I can't even recall how this methodology was introduced to me, but I most associate doing it with an old roommate of mine, Patty. She loved this solution too, and we would do it together a lot. The magical thing about the coin toss was abiding by whatever answer the coin landed on, heads, we have the salad, tails, a potato, was that in the finality of that landing, you would have a tiny surge of energy. Oh, salad. Or, yay, potato. In that little burst of energy, I then realized what I wanted. Because otherwise, I could endlessly debate a million reasons for why this one and not that one. The coin helped me realize what I really wanted. Other things in life probably should not be decided by a coin toss, though frankly, I've done this often enough and kind of think it's a good way as any to make up your mind about something. But of course, the better methodology is to know one's own mind, to know one's own feelings. That for me has been a lifelong journey. And I think again, I am perhaps not alone. Today's writer is Betsy Armstrong. And her personal essay, Third Best, is about feeling one's way to one of the most significant decisions we can make in our lives, not only whether or not to have a child, but also the way we may want to welcome a child into our lives, into our family. Her very personal story of how she felt her way towards motherhood is something that I relate to in the way that sometimes first seeing what we don't want may be the clearest way to illuminate the path towards what we do want. It's pausing at a fork in the road and deciding, no, that much more well-traveled path is not the one for me. And it's also not an accident that this episode is being planned for the month of May when we celebrate Mother's Day, the holiday that seems like the most obvious thing everyone can embrace, but nonetheless, leave some people behind when they are looking for that less common mother or motherhood story to identify with. One more thing before we get to the conversation, I hope you'll stick with us to the end of this episode because I am going to reveal the next location you can visit to claim your free Daring to Tell prize package. 
If Betsy's name sounds familiar to you, it's because she was on Daring to Tell in the first season, reading a very candid and sensitive narrative she wrote about her daughter Svetlana's suicide attempt. So we started this conversation with a little catch up on how Svetlana is doing now in May of 2022. I am so happy to tell you how well Svetlana is doing. She, as you said, had a rough road of it. And as is often the case in these situations, children don't always want to let their parents in on all the things that were happening. But today, Svetlana has moved back to Oak Park, which is where our home is. Um, She has her own place that she has with a friend from rehab, which isn't always a good situation. But in this case, it's great. They're keeping each other on track and really supporting each other beautifully. And she is set to graduate from high school in about a month. I'm going to be watching her walk across the stage, which a couple years ago did not feel like it was going to happen. And so she is just doing wonderfully going to school. She's happy. She comes over all the time. We have dinner together. So I, I, I hope your readers are, their minds are at ease if they weren't worried at all. Yes. <laughs> Not your readers. I'm sorry, your listeners. Listeners. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, your listeners. So yes, but Lana is awesome. She's just doing wonderfully. And I'm so that glad. Is, I'm so, so <laughs> glad to hear that. And we have certainly talked in the interim mm-hmm. um, quite a few times and it's never an easy road. And as we know, it's up and down a lot, but it it is a well earned respite uh, to take a breath and say, okay, things are going well. So I'm so glad about that. So um, thank you for asking. Absolutely. In the interim, you've been doing a lot of writing and the podcast daring to tell is a little different from the last time that you were on as Uh well. So I thought the next question I would start off by asking you about is to tell me a little bit more about your background with writing and so Betsy you and I met in a class called publicity powerhouse workshop where we're talking about building our platforms as writers with Nadine Kenny Johnstone who we both have worked with as a writing coach Mm -hmm. Um, so we both have been cheerleading each other along the way of our writing journeys and at every iteration of stories you have shared with me you have had such a different story to tell. (laughs) You have so many components to your story. And so I was very honored and pleased to have read your memoir manuscript, which Mm -hmm. you're still working on, pushing out. (laughs) And that will continue as it deserves to be out there. But this essay that you're going to read for us today is almost like, I would call it like, a mini overview of a lot of the components that are in your memoir. Fair enough? Yeah. Very fair. That's so true. It was actually interesting to write because I realized I had to put all these things in this piece in order for a listener reader to understand truly the journey that I've taken through my, I guess you could say, quest to not be a mother and then quest to be a mother. (laughs) Right, right. So how has writing played in your life? Well, when people used to ask me when I was just starting um, to write my memoir, they'd say, oh, you know, have you been a writer? Tell me about it. The only thing I had to offer because I'd never been published, I didn't major in writing in any way when I was in either of my programs, um, undergrad or graduate. And so I'd say, well, I've been a secret journaler (laughs) since I was 15 years old. (laughs) And it's true. I have volumes of journals that really were the way that I got through my childhood. Mm. It was the only safe place I had to express myself and just write down what happened and how I felt about things. Um, My family wasn't a safe place to do those things. So writing in my teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. So you continued journaling. Yes, I journal. Wow. Yeah, I've So journaled. how many journals do you have? 
countless. I don't even know. I have a big trunk full of them Wow. that I'm probably going to have to have asked to have burned when I die. <laughs> but that that's is the question as they stack up. You I go, know. What should oh I do with these? But they were the ticket though. When I first adopted the children, I had always worked. I'd had a full-time or part-time job since I was 15, again, 15, until I was 48 years old. And I quit my career to raise the kids once we adopted them. And I found myself just absolutely at a loss because they'd go to school and I would, you know, do the things that stay-at-home moms do, which, you know, you clean up, you do the dishes, you do the laundry, (laughs) you run errands, and then it feels like it's time to pick up your kids from school all of a sudden. But the monotony of doing something like that all day, every day, again and again, it only took a few months before I was like, oh my God, I either need a job or I need something that's just mine. And so I was looking, Googling different things. I have a lot of things I want to learn about. So I was, you know, oh, I could, you know, take up the piano again, or I could um, learn to paint or (laughs) something. I was going to say, did I even know you played the piano? Holy cow. I haven't. I mean, I'm not even good. It's, that's a long story. I took lessons forever. And for the amount of money I spent my parents spent, I probably should be a lot better. But anyway, um, so I was looking at all these things. And then I thought, you know, I want to do something that I already kind of have been wanting to do for a long time, um, and not something new. So I looked for writing classes around Mm -hmm. Chicago, I found Story Studio, which is also how I met Nadine. Mm -hmm. And I signed up for a memoir class. And that was in January of 2013. And I have not stopped taking classes (laughs) since. And now, almost nine years later, I have my memoir. I've gotten published a few times. And where have you, where have you gotten published? Because I wanted, I needed to be reminded. No, it's okay. Um, So, wow, Women on Writing um, recognized one of my essays in a contest. Um, That one was also about Svetlana. And then just recently, the Pinch Journal, which is um, from the University of Memphis, they put out a flash nonfiction. And so I just last week got a piece in there. And I've been submitting up a storm and hopefully I'll get a few more yeses because I'm certainly racking up the nose. But that's the writer's life. That's That's what you have to do. Exactly. And so I really appreciate the exposure you give me here and the chance to talk with you and read my work. Well, we are honored to be able to hear it. Honestly, I love your voice. You have such important stories. I love the way you write. And to go back to the writing background in journals I think that's the way a lot of people begin and as you were working on your memoir how much did you go back and look through your journals did you use them a lot in the telling of that story you know when I got into the nitty-gritty of our travels in Russia and what the adoption process that we went through over there I really did rely on them a lot because I couldn't believe when I went back and read the detail that I'd written about Moscow and just the people in it and even Birobijan, which is the small little village where my um, kids came from that's almost on the border of China, so it's a long way from Moscow. Wow. So I used them a lot for that. And then I did find myself going back to even some of the earliest ones just to understand a little bit more about the things that happened with my mother and stepdad and how that unfolded and the timing and things. So it was kind of cool to have something to go back and refer to, even if you read your journals from when you're a teenager and you just think, well, I thought two things. One, boy, was I depressed. (laughs) And, And the other thing was just, honestly, I kind of was proud of myself. Mm. at being brave enough to write that down anywhere while it was going on and then also just coming out of it and feeling like you know what that was then Mm -hmm. I have a different life now and I'm so happy that that's not my life anymore Yeah, yeah it really it can provide so much perspective that way and um I don't know I've had similar feelings when I go and look at some of my journals and go wow 
I was really unhappy at this point mm-hmm. or, you know, there was a lot going on. And yeah. I think in our mind, I don't know about you, but I go, oh, well, this was always pretty good. And mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe it wasn't yes. so good or, <laughs> you know, just because some things were and some things weren't. I don't know. Anyways, yeah. the other thing, I don't know if you found this at all when you were especially, I'm assuming, and we'll get into your piece that you're going to read a little bit more, Mm -hmm. Um, but your adoption process in Russia. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a point in your journals where you documented something or you could find like the dates and this happened then, but in your memory you go, oh, that's not how I remembered it happening at all. Like, was there ever a sequencing no. No, no, I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah. I have one of those weird memories where I remember all sorts of trivial details about things oh. that honestly, in the grand scheme of things, don't probably matter very much. That's but funny. But they definitely help me when I'm writing because, you know, I can remember what color shirt I was wearing somewhere or something those like that. Those are the kind of things when I read in people's memoirs, I go, who knew what the heck I was wearing? I don't even remember what clothes I had at that time in my life. Like, I rely on them for details about things that do. Just, I feel like I forget so much. So mm-hmm. it helps me to remember things. Yes. But, yeah, sequencing of things. I had one just recently. Yeah. Um, what which was is it? A little... I didn't know you were, a, are you an avid journaler as well? You know, I'm not an avid journaler. I always wish I was more so. There are times when I go through and I'll like go back and look and say, oh, that day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And I'll be like, wow, good for you, Michelle. Like I always cheer myself on or from the past or something. But, um, But sometimes not. And one thing that was when I was looking back at something, I was remembering the sequence of it had to do with my colon issues and my bathroom and visiting a doctor Mm -hmm. and there was like a time when I bought this book and I was going to see my GI and in my mind I bought the book way before the GI but then I I found when I bought the book and it was way after and so I totally confused myself about it and I had to rethink and I was really going what the heck happened and I don't know this is where I think writing memoir which mm-hmm. is true you yeah. know it has to be based on truth <laughs> mm-hmm. um and fact I, I don't know if I want to say factual it does have to be actually what happened we obviously can't make things up mm-hmm. but when I have run into data or facts that don't square with what my memory is mm-hmm. I've had to say okay what could have happened and I try to imagine mm-hmm. and that's where I imagination comes into it I don't know if in your memoir writing if the idea of not making something up that wasn't true but like having to envision what might have happened was ever but you you remember details so maybe well, that didn't happen that's not now that you're saying your example now I have something that it reminded me of so my mother and stepdad had such a volatile relationship and there were several times when she thought about leaving him and then ultimately didn't. And I wasn't sure on the timing of all these, like, okay, I'm leaving, I'm staying, we're going, we're not. I read this line in my journal that I had written down. It was at my graduation party for high school that my mom was telling people, most people have, you know, June weddings, but I'm having a June divorce. Wow. And, and I remember thinking, did she really say that out loud <laughs> to people at a party? Yeah, really. But she did. And I, she wow. must have. And it just, it sort of reminded me again of how, how much she really tried to get away from this man who wasn't very nice. I mean, he's right. in this piece that I'm going to read, but he's not the big part of it. But yeah, it just reminded me again of, of right. the struggle that she kind of went through to try to get away but didn't (laughs) so well that's yeah that is interesting and all of it when we start writing it down it just becomes Mm -hmm. the way to process oh absolutely yeah there's so many things about this adoption process and even afterward that when I was going through it and I was writing it 
I was literally just writing, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened. And then it's only later when I'm writing the memoir, it was very cathartic for me in so many ways to process all these things that really went on during the adoption process and, and after, as we'll see, it's, there were so many things I didn't think about, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, yeah. we have kids, we have to give them bedrooms and make sure they have, you know, all these necessities. And then you don't think about necessarily the other things that you're going to come up against and, and right. have to deal with. I mean, mm-hmm. Svetlana's suicide attempts were definitely one of those things I, I wasn't really prepared for. But, but even in the beginning, I mean, I had kids who didn't speak English but were entirely able to walk out the door if they wanted to, not knowing you know, really their last name, our phone number, our address. <laughs> wow. And so there yeah. was a lot of stress in the There's, beginning of, yes. you know, just all these things that come up that you just never in a million years really thought about until it was time to confront them. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that is how life goes. We can only deal with the <laughs> things that are in front of us at any given moment. Yep. And I think sometimes, even if we think that we have more control over some of those things that we envision <laughs> later on, nah, no. forget about that. And, and I'm one of those people who, when I'm envisioning something in the future, I'm usually envisioning the worst case scenario. <laughs> yes. Oh, of course. I believe my therapist calls that catastrophizing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But I'm very good at that. It's yes. supposed to be another thing that would make us good writers because we can imagine so many exactly. terrible things. <laughs> but that's fiction. That's fiction, yes. <laughs> we can't we don't know the future. It's memoirist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've heard a little bit about your background and the story is about the adoption mm-hmm. process a little bit and you're working into the adoption process. So Betsy, before you read your essay, do you want to let us know what year this is set in when you returned from your adoption or any other details before you read? Sure. So this was less than a month after we brought them home in the fall of 2012. And this was something that really stunned me when people started talking this way to me, which your listeners will hear in a minute. All right. Well, with that, I am very pleased to introduce Betsy Armstrong reading her essay called Third Best. Okay. Watching our kids on the playground after school, a group of moms surrounded me. I was a new addition, the one who had recently enrolled my kids, Andre, 12 years old, and his 10-year-old sister, Svetlana, in school. The other women were friendly, but curious. So where did you move from? One of them asked. We've lived in this neighborhood for about 10 years, but we didn't have kids before now. We just adopted them from Russia a couple weeks ago, I replied. A few foreheads wrinkled, heads cocked sideways, and puzzled expressions appeared on their faces. I could almost see them doing the math in their heads. So you just adopted them? And they're 10 and 12? I nodded. The first mom who figured it out began to gush. Oh my God, that's so amazing. You must be a saint to take on kids like them. No, I'm really not, I said, trying to ignore her assumption. Did she realize what she had just implied? Kids like them? They're great kids, actually. Another mom chimed in. Isn't infertility the worst? We had to do three rounds before our twins were born. A few heads nodded in solidarity. I attempted a sympathetic smile. I never did infertility treatments. It just wasn't something I was willing to do. But one of them couldn't stop herself. She asked, why not? Didn't you want babies or at least younger kids? Not really, I tried to make light of her question. I haven't changed a diaper in my entire 48-year life. At this point, I'm on a streak that I can't break. And these kids, they're perfect for me. The conversation on the playground and all the others I'd had since Doug, my husband, and I began the adoption process in our late 40s made it clear. In the eyes of the world, we had chosen third best. Not a first choice, a baby of our own. Not second choice, an adopted baby. But third choice, the we-can't-get-a-baby-anywhere choice. Not only an older child, but older children. Honest-to-God, 10- and 12-year-old kids third best. The questions hurt 
and even more the thoughts behind them. What did they say about me as a woman or about my children? Why was I supposed to want anything besides what I chose? The assumption is that everybody wants a baby of their own. Babies mean cute little chubby hands that will clutch at you. Hands that will grow to look just like yours or your partner's. They mean eyes precisely the same color, eyes that will look back at you exactly like a mirror. They mean those little, impossibly tiny feet that make footprints the doctor, or more likely a nurse in the delivery room, will press onto a piece of paper for you and your beloved to gaze at in wonder and say, we made this together. Wow. Babies mean the bloodline will continue. That your child will be as smart, as good-looking, as productive, and as successful as one or both of you, at least. Or maybe, hopefully, even more so. And of course, your baby belongs to you. Only you. Your baby came out of you. You created this baby. Yours is the first face this baby will ever know and fall in love with. There will only be one person this baby calls Mama, and it will be you. Only you. I can offer one other reason this is the first choice. It's easier. If you can simply deliver a baby, trust me, it's better to give birth than to go through the adoption process I endured to have children. Of course, sometimes pregnancy itself isn't simple. There's infertility, a devastating word to people who yearn for babies. It means you might not get what you want. When you hear this word applied to you, you think, they say there's no reason for this, and I want a baby. So you learn about the wonders of medical science and the doctors with their amazing remedies, and you do them, every single one of them. The procreational kind of unnatural sex, the drugs, the harvesting of eggs as if you were a field to be plundered, the acquiring of as many perfectly swimming sperm as possible, the test tubes in which these substances are married in the least romantic, most technological ceremony ever. And the ceremony where your might be a baby is joined with what feels like your soul. Legs spread wide, eyes closed, wrapped in a paper gown, you welcome this maybe baby into you as your mind, body, and spirit silently reverberate with the word, stay. But the union doesn't last, just like the paper robe you crumpled up and threw away. Now, you must do every single one of the next things, the things that are not so scientific. You do the meditation, the special diet, the herbs, the acupuncture, the trip to forget about this baby-wanting, baby-making business, the one where you were supposed to finally, accidentally, get pregnant, but you don't. All the while, inside, you pray, you beg, and you secretly count the days of your cycle while you feel empty, hollow. There's a space inside of you where a baby is supposed to be but is not, infertile. It finally comes to mean that you will not have what you want. You have to accept second best. It may surprise you that I was diagnosed with unexplained infertility, and I didn't care. In fact, I was relieved. It meant that my body, which had a crooked spine due to scoliosis inside of it, wouldn't have to be stressed to the point of actually snapping in two. Infertility also meant I could keep running. I was an athlete, a runner, and a triathlete, in spite of my scoliosis, who completed multiple marathons, ultramarathons, and even the Ironman. At one point, athletic events became my profession. How many people can turn a hobby they love into their job? Pregnancy would have ruined those aspirations, if not my career, too. I was also an expert at a special kind of running, running away. During my adolescence, I ran away from troubles at home, from a stepdad who resented me and ultimately disowned me in the wake of my mother's death. Later, I ran away from relationships, jobs, places, basically everything and everyone. Running away from babies was easy for me. They were gaping holes of need and permanent in a way I couldn't comprehend. A baby was the one thing I could never so cavalierly run from, the thing that was impossible to undo, the thing I would be stuck with for the rest of my life, forever. Worst of all, babies reminded me of my mom, who died at 46 years old when I was 23. With her death, my world fell apart, and I reassembled it by running, which became a kind of legacy to her. 
Her death planted the idea of mortality in me, too. I expected to die at 46, just like she did. If that happened, and I had a baby, I reasoned, I'd be abandoning it as I'd been abandoned. I couldn't, I wouldn't put a child through that kind of pain. The idea of mom all by itself left me bereft and aching, even 25 plus years after she died. To have a baby alone, without my own mother next to me, holding my hand, was inconceivable, just like a baby. But babies are what you are supposed to want. It is the first choice, the best choice. And if that doesn't happen, and you feel called, destined to have a child, you will accept your second choice, second best. Second best is still a baby or a very young child at the most. That is the good news. It just won't be your baby. That's the catch. The finding of this baby is a bit tricky. You need to find someone who is just like you, who looks like you, acts like you, and seems like you, except for three important things. One, she is pregnant. Two, she doesn't want her baby. And three, she will give it to you. You advertise, since this is how people discover their baby's mama these days. You say, loving couple is looking for a child to complete their dream family, or something to that effect. There are not many happy-sounding synonyms for desperate. You create a life book to sell yourself to expectant moms, as if you and your partner are the revolutionary new detergent on the shelves of a supermarket. We are great. Pick us, say the hopeful, slightly manic smiles you plastered across your face in the pictures. You don't feel great at all. In your search, you create websites and Facebook pages and tweet away your desire for the second best baby. Unfortunately, most times, this pregnant person and their giveaway baby do not exist. So you turn to second best plan B. This means you have some important decisions to make. Decisions about age, skin color, health. As one of the facilitators at an adoption information session I attended stated, quote, you will not find a perfect white baby here, unquote. She said this unprompted and unapologetically, revealing the sad, bitter truth of the adoption hierarchy. The older, darker, and less healthy a child is, the, quote, less desirable the child becomes. Adoption demands that you confront your bias or biases and weigh them against a child's need for a family. Even if you're willing to face yourself, much of our country is not. And if you are willing, you then need to embrace the adopted child's birth family too. Open adoption is what all the agencies insist upon, so your child can remain in contact with their people. I'll be honest, that was the deal breaker for Doug and me. By the time we thought about it, we knew we wanted older children. We knew we wanted siblings. We didn't care what color they were, but we also knew we wanted a clean break. Keeping the children who might be ours connected with their other family members sounded incredibly complicated, confusing, and heartbreaking for everyone, especially the child. We couldn't do it. And there was something else lurking in the idea of second best for me my experience of being a stepchild. My stepdad was a monster. He brutalized me emotionally and verbally, and he abused my brother, another stepchild, physically. By the time I was 11, he made it clear I was unwanted, unnecessary, and undeserving. He acted as if love was a limited resource he refused to waste on me. I could never repeat my past by rejecting and resenting a child. Because of this, I wanted needed to be absolutely 100% certain that the children I adopted were meant to be mine. Domestic adoption wasn't to be for me. For you, however, the good news is that if you are in a position of financial privilege and are willing to fly across the ocean and a few seas for a baby, international adoption might be your ticket. The catch, why is there always a catch? Is that you'll open your home to strangers provide financial statements, family history, and fingerprints. You'll give your medical history, your blood, and x-rays of your insides. You'll need to contact your congressperson to get stamps and signatures, which is not easy. You must prove you are you and that you are not a criminal, a pedophile, or a terrorist. 
you'll have to be a good citizen and more importantly, a good person. You'll end up filling out reams and reams and reams of paperwork only to be provided a paragraph and a picture of your prospective child. These two small pieces of evidence must be enough for you to feel in your heart and soul that this is your baby. And all of this will take at least a year. Will that work for you? And another something to decide about is the crude matter of economics. How much does this baby cost? What about that one or that one? How much will you, can you afford to spend on your baby? Like your baby was a car and you were thinking about buying the leather seats and a really good sound system. This baby thing isn't easy, is it? So when I was about 40 years old and the universe or God or my body wouldn't give us a baby, it validated all of my fears. I heard unexplained infertility and decided to name it destiny instead. And I was absolutely fine. I was living a sweet life, such a sweet life with Doug after all. I called myself selfish and joked about getting another dog. The whole baby desiring, child producing, toddler adopting, industrial complex ecosystem seemed messed up. It freaked the shit out of me. So I didn't do it, any of it. And then I was 46, approaching 47, expecting to die as my mom had. And I didn't. I lived. <laughs> that is when, deep inside my finally 47-year-old mind, in a room whose door I had thought closed and locked, actually that I didn't even know existed, the idea of kids appeared. Not a baby. <laughs> Holy moly, not a baby. And not just one either. Kids. Plural? Yes. A family. For me. For Doug. For real. I was more than a little surprised. So was everyone else. The only way I could explain it was that I was alive. I'd been married for 15 years. I finally believed I would sustain a relationship instead of running away. When I actually imagined children who might be mine, they appeared to me like little people whom I might have something in common with. Kids who were having a sadder than it should have been childhood Kids whose mother made a bad choice that inadvertently slammed them all into an alternate reality they never asked for, but were forced to bear anyway. Kids who had lost their family, their mom, their everything, through the cruel turns of the way things simply turned out to be. This stuff, these kids, I could relate to. I found Andre and Svetlana, my first choice children, full stop. So when people on the playground or in the world infer that my children are third best, I want to say firmly, they are not. Not to me, not to Doug, not to our family, not at all. But heartbreakingly, even Andre and Svetlana have asked me, Mama, why did you choose us? Didn't you want a baby? Their question hurts deep in my soul in a way that thoughts of babies not meant to be never, ever, ever could. My answer is this. I was here waiting for you and learning to be your mom. And I didn't even know it for years. You, Andre, you, Svetlana, all along I was here and waiting for you. And I am here. I will always be here for you, my children. I have learned to stay. Okay, I'm crying. <laughs> thank you, Betsy. Yeah. Thank you for letting me read it. Oh my God, thank you so much for reading it. This piece has so much in it. Yeah. Take a moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I read that and it just, it really does make me cry. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I still can't believe I did this. Even all these years later, I still can't believe it. Yeah. What's, what's the I can't believe it? I think, I know it sounds kind of crazy and weird, but the fact that I didn't die when I was 46 really rocked my world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really did. And yeah. I just remember kind of waking up and, and thinking, oh my gosh, now what am I going to do? <laughs> You know, it's really, yes, 
and then just to go down this path when I had really pushed it away all my life. Um, it right. was such a surprise and such a, I don't know, it was a U-turn <laughs> almost yeah. in a weird yeah. way. I do think it's interesting how we don't realize that we m- might be working our way towards something or ready to see a 180 degree turn in our life in a way that you never envisioned. And yeah, that turning 47, I find that really, really interesting because I can see how significant it was for you mm-hmm. in that absence of your mom. Because you were, you were technically an adult. You were 23 when she died, but, um, mm-hmm. but you were still... I was, I was, and I was a young 23. I mean, I definitely was enmeshed with my mom in a way that probably wasn't healthy. And then the readers, this, the disownment from my stepdad right after my mom died, that really, you know, when you're 23 and all of a sudden you're, you don't have your childhood home anymore. You don't have, you know, all the memorabilia from your childhood. And then this person and I had two stepbrothers as well, these people who I'd been sitting around, you know, Thanksgiving tables with and exchanging Christmas gifts with. And I went to their graduation parties when they, you know, got out of college. They were all older than me. And and so it was just so strange to suddenly have none of that. Right. It was just very jarring. And, you know, I felt like I defined the word alone. <laughs> you know, yeah. at that yeah. point, you could have looked it up in the dictionary, and my picture yeah. would have been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so yeah, it was really hard. And and then I learned how to be alone, and I decided that that was how I liked it. You know, and I just yeah. kind of pushed all these things away right. and kept looking for I don't know what, but I certainly was skipping around jobs and places. I moved all the time and. So, so yeah, to suddenly feel like I could make this decision that to me felt so um, irrevocable. Exactly. I, I just, it stunned me that I was ready to do that. So I have another question because I'm a little curious and as I hear you read it again, I go, it sounds like you did have a period where you tried to get pregnant. I didn't. And that's, uh, I, I know that it sounds like I did. But yeah. the thing is, when we got married and I was 35, I went to the gynecologist because back then, especially everyone was saying 35, you know, it's a geriatric pregnancy. It's, you're old, you, you know, you're never going to get pregnant. And my doctor actually said, don't worry, there's nothing magical about 35, you know, you have time. So it was kind of like a regular checkup. And so then then I went back when I was, what, 39? And he said to me, you know, don't come to me when you're 42 and wanting a baby because that's going to get really hard. And so because I hadn't gotten pregnant, even though we weren't using any sort of birth control, he had me go and do the tests where they make sure that, you know, your ovaries aren't blocked and everything. And then Doug had to go do his fun test (laughs) where they check to make sure everything's good with him. And we did that because we wanted to make sure there was nothing wrong with us. It wasn't like I was pursuing pregnancy. I just wanted to make sure that there was nothing inside of me that was wrong um, because colon cancer, you know, I was always, I'm always just worried about cancer <laughs> inside of me because right. my mom died. Of course. So that's why we, you know, I just got tested to reassure myself that my body was okay. That was the only test I did. Like we never took it the next step where, oh, do you want to, you know, do hormones and get into infertility and getting your eggs? I didn't want to do any of that because I had friends who did all these things. Right, Right. I had lots of friends who went through infertility, who had multiple miscarriages, I watched them, you know, do this roller coaster of, oh, I might be pregnant and the crash of I'm not pregnant. I mean, again and again. And and I think that some background, Doug, mm-hmm. you were, it was pretty clear that you knew Doug wanted kids. Is that yes, fair to that's say? That's something okay. else that, um, yeah, yeah, Doug and I talked about it a lot. Um, 
in a very roundabout way, <laughs> however. But it was it was obvious to me just he has a very close family, a huge family. Sometimes I joke that I've entered like the alternate reality when I when I became an Armstrong. Uh-huh. It was it's very just so different than my upbringing and um and so I knew he wanted them but we agreed that it was like it had to be two yeses and if there was one no then it was no. Right. And so when we didn't get pregnant naturally, you know, we both got checked out to make sure everything was fine inside of our bodies. And it was. And as I say in the piece, I just kind of went, oh, well, that's destiny. I guess not going to happen. Easy to say. Easy easy to say, okay, you know, the decision was made for me. I don't have to worry about this. And, And yeah, and then I turned 47. And I think the other piece of it was that I think my my in-laws, my my family now really showed me what it looks like to to be able to commit to each other as a family and not have these falling outs and these irrevocable breaks that death causes or that, you know, my family certainly um, had no problem just kind of shutting people out. And as did I, I guess I think I learned how to be in a relationship and, and Doug has, you know, he's just the best guy ever. (laughs) (laughs) I love him so much. And, um, and he loves me so much, which is the other piece of it. You know, it's, it's truly feels like a partnership. And so, yeah, I woke up and went, have I really learned how to do this? And, and yeah, and I watch all my friends go through those losses again and again. That was the other piece of the infertility parts that sound right. pretty, pretty vivid. Um, yes. And I just watched them have these losses. And I think it was the loss that really triggered me um, because I'd felt like I'd lost so much in my life already. Oof, I'm yeah. getting a little choked up here. <clears throat> I felt like I just lost a lot already. And I didn't, I didn't want to lose things people anymore I didn't want to have hope and lose it I Mm. just felt like that wasn't something I was willing to do to me or to Doug and we really we had you know (laughs) we were two people with jobs we loved you know traveling and doing all the things that you can do and um and I just thought why upset this why why change it it's not broken and I'm good and he seems to be okay with the idea right. of no kids so let's not do that right right yeah and then you turned 47 and then I turned 47 <sighs> darn it <laughs> <laughs> no it was it was such a real surprise I mean at one point there were friends of mine who knew you know how kind of heart-wrenching my mom's death had been for me and I had literally counted out the days that she lived like past 46 until she died. And I was like, you know, on August 11th of whatever year it was, I'm going to throw a huge party. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just to, to be, you know, I to celebrate. So, so what, I mean, I know that that was huge for you, but I guess what else did that mean? Or like, how, how did you see that turn once you were 47 and you said, you know, like, because what's so just so completely heartfelt here is discovering something that you had in you to give, I think, is maybe what it was. And how did you find that then? Wow, that's a good question, Michelle. <laughs> um, so I think I've always been this goal setter this go-getter. And I made a bucket list before things were called bucket lists. You know, my mom died and, and we, I took care of her while she died and we had a lot of conversations and she was very sad and full of regret that she hadn't gotten to do the things, some of the things that she'd really wanted to do. And that at 23 years old seemed like the biggest tragedy honestly, that someone would Mm. die and be really so sad about it. Like I always imagined myself dying when I was 80, you know, by like dropping at the, 
<laughs> after running a marathon, like dying at the finish line <laughs> back when I could run marathons. Yeah. And, and, you know, if it wasn't going to be that, then it was going to be before I turned 47. And I think that realizing that I had done all these things really that I'd wanted to do, I mean, and surprisingly on that bucket list that I made back when I don't even know, I wasn't married to Doug yet, but I had written like, have a family who's happy, you know, Mm. be so in love with your husband that you are sure that you're going to love children. I know I'd written this down in my journals, going back to the journaling thing. That's pretty wild something because to see that piece of ourselves you probably go whoa I know I know and so it was one of those things unfortunately the other thing that was on well two things that were on the list that I hadn't done were learn Spanish (laughs) and and write a book (laughs) so here we go on the book thing but I was so full of um this this idea that suddenly I had time Mm -hmm. Yes. To do other things. I yeah. mean, it was really like, well, what am I going to do now? In a real, right. like, macro sense of, you know, not yeah. like, what am I going to have for breakfast? But like, what am I going to do now with my life if I'm not running marathons and running these organizations and right. all of these other things that I love doing? But this idea of children appeared to me. and yeah. And it wasn't in the form of anything anybody else I knew wanted I guess that's part of it too right exactly that's I think that that's what this is all about third mm-hmm. best is like yeah. wait a minute why do I have to want what everybody yeah. else wants mm-hmm. and honestly by the time I wanted it you know it was too late to have a baby obviously right. so um so yeah but so. it was the thing that was perfect for you as as mm-hmm. you say you know like this is what was perfect for me and it was at the right point and the right time and there they were there they were yeah well and I think too I don't want to give away my whole memoir here but right um you know because you've read it we actually had a failed adoption before Mm -hmm. Andrea and Svetlana yeah and so that that experience really rocked my boat and made me think again is this really what I'm supposed to do because if it's not I mean this went so horribly (laughs) that first time it went so horribly that if it hadn't been for Doug I wouldn't have entered into another adoption process again yeah I mean referring to things that you and I know but Mm -hmm. the listener doesn't know you you have I will just say the most really harrowing adoption story. I mean, I don't have kids, which is part of what I think we've, it's <laughs> yeah, sort of like you bond with over. someone over, we don't yes. have kids, even though you have them, but it's mm-hmm. anyways. Yeah. Um, you obviously have beautiful kids now, but the adoption process, man, I was blown away by how difficult and and I have been aware of other people I've known who've had um, an international adoption situation and have told me stories that I was just like oh my god it's it's so difficult and heartbreaking and yeah uh, Mm -hmm. there's a lot involved and it's funny because you talk about pregnancy being the easy choice and (laughs) it really would have been (laughs) and listeners of Derek to tell who listened to um elaine and dylan talk about being pregnant i go all right that's no i mean that doesn't mean that's easy (laughs) no i know i know and i know but i know yeah every some of this is tongue-in-cheek i hope people get that (laughs) of course yes i know we should say Mm -hmm. but you know we all know people who have been through these really um, difficult situations. So anyways, the adoption story, there's so much more, which 
is a story that deserves to be heard. And so as you continue seeking the right place for your memoir to find its way into the world, it is a really significant, worthwhile story to be heard. So maybe we'll have to have you back and read another chapter or something. Pretty sure people are going to get sick of me and my story. Oh, I don't think so. So before I entirely let you go, I'm trying to think if there was other questions I had about this story, but oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Mm -hmm. There must be ways that you find your mom now that you are a mom. Hmm. I don't know if you feel like you embody her or how has your experience as her daughter infused your mothering? Wow, that is a question I don't think I've ever really thought about. Really? Um, Probably because, well, the way that I embody my mom as a mother is probably my anxiety, Mm. (laughs) quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, I am definitely, I think about this now. So back when we first brought the kids over, they were so tiny. I mean, they were 10 and 12 and Andre weighed 53 pounds and Svetlana weighed like 48 pounds. They were so small for their age. And so of course I'm being this diligent mom who is looking online. Well, what's, what's the rule about car seats? You know, how old do kids have to, cause I didn't know. I mean, I had no clue. I still have never changed a diaper in my life (laughs) and I still feel like I'm on a streak. I can't break. Right, right. Maybe with grandchildren, but that's a ways off, hopefully. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was at Target, you know, I'm buying them a car seat because I learned in Illinois, you know, they have to weigh 80 pounds or be nine years old. And I thought, well, they are nowhere near 80 pounds. And so I bought them car seats. And it wasn't until probably three months after they got here where I was picking up Andre and Svetlana and then a friend of each of theirs to take them somewhere after school as, you know, like a play date. And these Andre's two friends who are 12 (laughs) look at Andre getting in a car seat and they're like, what's going like Mrs. Armstrong, why are they in car seats? And I'm like, well, I thought it was the law. (laughs) You know, It was so and I felt so bad because both Andre and Svetlana were, of course, just embarrassed to have somebody like me telling them, you know, how too protective, overprotective. Um, yeah, I was laughing because the other thing that I think is the ghost of my mother is just the first time that kids came over to our house to play and anybody who's a mom, I mean, I'm just, you, you can see me, I'm like covering my eyes in shame at this. I had the cleaning lady come that morning and clean the house for kids to come and play. And then I set out all these snacks and little bowls. It was like I thought I was throwing some kind of party for adults, you know. And we're all going to sit around the kitchen counter and chit-chat and eat Cheez-Its. Right, right. Oh, boy. That is very funny. And I just look back and I'm like, oh, my God. I, I was such a just overprotective, really right. anxious wow. person who was just trying yeah. to like, you know, manipulate right. the situations. And, and that's very reminiscent of my mom. And I she mean was that like a in a loving way, but she was Uber very, care. Yeah. oh my goodness. I mean, just super, a super cleaner, like, mm. you know, I mean, our yeah. house was always spotless. And, right. and so some of the things, yes, I'm just very anal about things. And my family laughs at me, you know, they just are like, give it up, mom, just give it up. You're not going to keep this clean. You're not going to be able to organize it. We're just let go a little. (laughs) So, but I, and I laugh at it. I mean, my mom, obviously I loved her deeply and nobody's perfect. She had her faults. I wish she had left my stepdad, but I can look back now at some of the antics of, you know, controlling and trying to make things perfect like she was trying to do and just right. laugh because, yes, there are definitely traces of that that I, I absorb that I still put out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's like I think often some of the things we are the harshest 
critic of ourself about mm-hmm. it's all her fault <laughs> <laughs> i know oh mothers oh but, mothers i'm sure and i'm sure andrea and svelana have stories if you were to interview them they can be like, well, mm-hmm. let me tell you this and that right, and that right. so it is pretty hilarious so my final question before i let you go mm-hmm. is the daring to tell you can't get out without it I know. What, what was what was daring about this this piece, Betsy? I think the most daring thing about this piece is, is probably the tone of it. Um, yeah, I don't want to minimize any other woman's experience or desire how they got to their family. I think that's part of what I feel though the world does to me sometimes and to my children. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but yes, uh, I think, in pointing out just all these machinations we all, not we all, but people, women go through to have children, I think that it gets lost that there are kids out there already who need people. Yeah. And that's kind of what heart, what's heartbreaking to me is that I know a lot of people have um, impressions, I guess, of these international adoptions, especially from Russia or the Eastern Bloc, that these kids are, you know, emotionally unstable and they're going to be a handful. And, oh, you might have to, as one woman did quite a while ago, you know, pin pin a tag on them and send them back to Russia on a plane. Yeah, that was in the news a long time ago. But at the end of the day, they are just kids who had such a bad break at the beginning of their lives and as I said I mean this was something I could relate to to just seeing somebody who was much younger than I was at 23 having the same sort of they've lost everything they don't have anyone and I don't know I guess maybe this is a little bit of me going back and helping my childhood self and being like it's gonna be okay you're gonna get out of this Actually, it's probably going to be pretty wonderful. And so I'm really, I wish that people would, instead of going through all the things they go through and spending money on a lot of the things we spend money on to have children, sometimes I wish people would just go, hey, this isn't a second choice or a third choice. I could get the kids who are perfect for me. Like they Mm -hmm. might already be out there. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what was brave about it is just kind of putting all that, in words and saying like, Hey, this sounds a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) we poke a little fun Mm -hmm. only to say, you know what? It's not third best. Nope. There's all kinds of ways. So yeah. Well, thank you very much for writing them down and reading them here today and sharing them. And, um, uh, I feel like I want to get to know them at some point. <laughs> I know, I know. Svetlana would love to be interviewed. You probably, oh. trust me, she's <laughs> she's quite the bubbly. We keep saying, you need to be an actress, Svetlana, because you are good. Yeah. 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 But great. I so appreciate you having me on again, Michelle. It's always a delight oh, to read you. for you, and you're so thoughtful and, and such a great interviewer. Thank Just you. pull out Thank all the you. good parts, so... I love doing it. It's always (laughs) great to have such a good conversation. So thank you, Betsy. Thank you. See you next time, maybe. Okay. Next time. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Oh, God. I just love talking with Betsy. And I was just looking through her website, reminding myself of some of her other essays and writings. She was also a winner of the 2020 Writer's Digest Personal Essay Award for her essay called The Alchemy of Apple Pie. And that was another thing that she and I discovered we had a connection over because we both love making apple pie and learned about making apple pie at the elbow of our grandmothers. For her, it was her great-grandma, Anna. So I would Really encourage you to go check out that if you have any love for apple pie at all. And I will put a link to her website and to her writing in the show notes. So now, okay, as promised, for the many listeners who live in or around Maine's Midcoast, the special location this month where you can visit to get your Daring to Tell 
special gift prize package is Gulf of Maine Books on Main Street in Brunswick. They are our special independent bookstore partner this month. So the first person to visit Gulf of Maine Books and tell either Gary or Beth that you heard about Gulf of Maine on Daring to Tell. Maybe you already know about it. It's a fantastic bookstore. You will get a little prize package, including a $50 gift certificate to their amazing bookstore. So go check out Gulf of Maine Books or, of course, your own local bookstore where a treasure trove of stories and wisdom and escape and connection are always sitting side by side just waiting to be opened up. By you. I hope you will also visit my website, michellerado.com, and sign up for my newsletter. It is called Hit Pause, where I share my own observations and stories as I continue pondering over the conversations that I have every month on Daring to Tell with such great writers. You can also follow me on Twitter at Michelle Rado. One more shout out this month. If you enjoy the wisdom that comes from listening to personal essays and also conversations about creativity, you might also enjoy Heart of the Story with Nadine Kenny Johnstone. Nadine is a writing teacher and coach, the one who has worked with me extensively as well as Betsy and many other writers. Every week she shares stories of healing, hope, and following her heart So I will put a link to her podcast in my show notes as well, and maybe that will be one that you will enjoy. Finally, thank you to my wonderful husband, Phil Rado, for my theme music, Make Me Brave. And most of all, thanks to you for making it all the way to the end of this episode, and as always, for daring to listen. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol is like swimming up waterfall or taking away the ground taking away the ground it's like taking a 